rest of you, if you would please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. This morning, as you turn there, we will be beginning the first of an eight-part series on sin, salvation, and sanctification. The series is topical, but each message will be textual in that we'll look at an individual text. Studying the issue, trying to, how do Christians, once they're saved, how do Christians deal with, what do we do with the sin that remains in our life? What do we make of that? How should we talk about that? What should or shouldn't we do with that? I think it's a very important topic. In the last year or so, in numerous conversations, in counseling, out of counseling, I've just seen people struggle, um, struggle with both the categories and the biblical framework to think about sin in their life as Christians. And I've seen even more saddening to me are people struggling with sin, feeling unable to go and talk to people, feeling that if we can talk about nice little sins, but to talk about what's really going on in my heart, I can't do that. Christians don't do that. Christians don't struggle with that. And as long as we think that, we're not going to grow, we're not going to become more like Jesus Christ. And so I hope in the next eight weeks, starting this, this morning, we'll see the Bible has much to say. God has given us much good instruction, much hope, much grace, many promises relating to our struggle with sin, what to do with the categories, biblical terms to use, truth that will strengthen us, grace that will energize us. And this morning, as we look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, I really just want to deal with two issues. This morning's message is living life with a holy God, why Christians must deal with their sin. Why Christians must deal with their sin. John is writing to the church, to professing believers, and in these five verses, there's much profound truth. Let's read 1 John 1, 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. A lot of profound truth here. And what we're going to see, if you just want to look at the structure of these five verses, is this. In verse six, 5, John makes an announcement, a theological declaration. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. What message is that? That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And out of that theological declaration about who God is, follow five ifs. Verse 6, if we say. Verse 7, if we walk. Verse 8, if we say. Verse 9, if we confess. Verse 10, if we say. And so the way of the thinking goes is this. Here is a truth about God and who he is. And that then begs five questions about its relationship to us. Because all the ifs have to do with us. Because of who God is, what if we? What if we? What if we? And each of the ifs is followed by two consequences. So if we do A, then B and C happens. That's, that's the structure. It's really straightforward. Three of the ifs have negative outcomes. You can see them in, in verse 6, 8, and 9. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, number one, we lie. Number two, do not practice the truth. Number eight, if we say we have no sin, number one, we deceive ourselves. Number two, and the truth is not in us. Number 10, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, 
Number one, we make him a liar. And two, his word is not in us. And nestled in the middle are the two positives. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so we're given three warnings. Don't do this in verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. And two positive things. And so we're first going to look at why this matters. But understand that the solution, what we're called to do, is, is to an ongoing practice of walking in the light and confessing our sins. I'm, I'm going to look at that in the second half of this morning's message. And what's contrasted with that is talk. Notice that in verses 6 8 and uh, 10, if we say, if we say, if we say, contrasted with if we walk, verse 7, if we confess, verse 9. James, like other authors, is not very, I mean, John, sorry, James as well, in chapter 2, is not very concerned, not very impressed with what we say, but what we do. So, why then, I, I, I'm clearly, I'm stressing that I believe dealing with sin and thinking about it and, and rigorously dealing with it as Christians is a big deal. Why then must Christians deal with their sin? Why is this so important? After all, those of us who know the Lord, we're, for, we're forgiven, we're saved, we're justified. We can never slip through his hands. You'll never lose one of us. You can't lose your salvation. So it may be important, but eight weeks, I mean, come on. I think you'll see it's very important. It's very important. And, and let me say it again at the outset. This is, this is about believers. If you're here today, you don't know the Lord, you don't believe you have a relationship with him, what you need to do is to look in faith to Christ. You need to trust him to be your, your salvation, your savior. And, and we'd love to talk more with you about that if that's some of the question you have. But, but here we're talking to the church and it's about people who are already forgiven, already justified, already ransomed and redeemed, already having their sins taken away. And you know, we get this strange language in here about forgiveness and cleansing. And what's all that about? Well, we'll hopefully get to the bottom of it before our time here this morning is done. But why then must Christians deal with their sin? First, the glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. And that's where this passage starts, <coughs> before we get into five verses about us, all of that responds to, all of that is initiated by this glorious truth about who God is. God, he says, is light. This is a message that he received and he is passing on. He's proclaiming it. God is light. And in John's gospel and in John's usage, what does light mean? Well, in John chapter 1, in him was light and the light was the life of men. Or did I get that backwards? In him was life and the life was the light of men. Light and life are seen as connected. Light is also seen as truth. Jesus says you have a, the, the light a little while longer with you. Walk while it is daytime. Light relates to holiness. In John's gospel, the light and the darkness of the world are at odds, and the darkness does not overcome the light. So what does it mean when we say God is, is light? It means he is holy. He is not like us. It means he is the life giver. He's full of life. He's full of truth. And it means he is morally pure. God is light. And in him is not the tiniest smidgen or speck of darkness. Not, not the teeny weeny tiniest bit. And that is a glorious truth. He is holy, holy, holy. And, and his glory is in the fact that he is light. And so when his children, who bear his name, are covered in darkness, the glory of God is at stake. God is, is light. And, and the rest of this passage then begs the question, well, what do we do with it? How do you live with a God who, who is light when you have darkness, when I have darkness? How, how do you do that? That may not be a question you think that often. You think, oh, I'm forgiven, I'm set. There's nothing I can do that will make God love me more or less. That, that is a true statement. If by it you mean there is nothing I can do that will make the Lord more or less committed to bringing me to glory, to bringing me to him, 
to finishing the job and glorify me. That is true. There is nothing you can do that can make God more or less committed to your salvation. But there are very many things you can do that can make God more or less pleased or displeased with you day by day. And that's what this passage deals with. Absolutely. Fellowships on the line here, all sorts of things. And sometimes we can sort of flatten this out. There's nothing you can do. Jude says, my children, abide in the love of God. There's an experiential pleasure in our relationship with God. And, And this matters. God's glory is at stake. Second, our ongoing fellowship with God is at stake. Now look, look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John is a very simple, straightforward writer. His sentences tend to be short. His statements clear and direct. This is simple, but I want you to get the implication of this. This means... That if you are walking in darkness, which is a way of saying not following Christ, doing your own thing, walking in sin, it doesn't matter how many tears you weep at the worship service. It doesn't matter how long you're on your knees in prayer. It, It doesn't matter whether you have lots of warm, fuzzy feelings when you think about Jesus. If you're walking in darkness, you lie if you think you have fellowship with God. Let that that sink in. Why why is dealing with sin as Christians, why is thinking about this important? Your fellowship with God, which the gospel brought, Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. That, That great establishment of peace and fellowship with God can be set aside for a time because of sin. And the logic is simple. God is light. There's no darkness in him. If there's darkness in you, you can't fellowship in him. Not while that darkness remains undealt with. We lie. And what happens as we lie is we begin to believe our own lie. Look down at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we begin to deceive ourselves. And so initially, you probably know you're not right with the Lord. And you want to let people know. And it's not like we're walking around going, I have fellowship with God. But we indicate we have fellowship with God. We take communion together. Do you know that when you take communion, that is a demonstration, a a declaration that you are one who feeds regularly on Christ? Coming to church and not talking. We, we, We declare that we have fellowship with God all the time without saying, I have fellowship with God. We do it all the time. And in many ways, if we're walking in darkness, we are lying. And we, worse, we begin to deceive ourselves. Now, let me, let me show you how this works. Jeff, if you would uh, kill the lights here for a second. Okay. So God is light. I'm not God. Here's the light. Just lest there be any confusion. Lest there be any confusion. God is light. And there's darkness. And, and he invites us in the gospel to come and have fellowship with him and his son. But we begin to wander off and sort of do our own thing. We wander off and we wander off. And it's not that God's moved, it's that we've moved. He's light. Light expels darkness. And I think, honestly, that's part of the reason why sometimes we keep our distance, where we want to live in sort of the shadow lands. Because as we walk in the darkness, it becomes easier and easier for us to believe our own lies and believe our own excuses and begin to think we're doing better than we are. I mean, over here in the twilight, this is a nice-looking flower. Yeah? Pretty healthy looking, it just doesn't look that bad. And what happens when you bring this flower over to the light? What do you find out about it? It is sickly, it is weak, it is dying. Over in the darkness, this looked pretty good, didn't it? I mean, it looked okay. And so if you, if you don't really want to know the state of your soul, if you don't really want to know how you're doing then staying in the darkness or the shadowlands is a safe place to be. This is, of course, in John 3, why Jesus says, the darkness hates the light and does not come to the light, lest its deeds be exposed. And so some of us are sort of hanging out just about here, you know, just maybe getting one foot in, getting a tan on one leg or something, and and just sort of, you know, because if I get too close before God, all the little corruptions in me, all the little things I'm holding back, all the things that, that, you know, I love the Lord and will be exposed. He might ask me for them. So I'm going to stay over here. Yeah? The other problem is 
as we walk in the darkness more and more, our eyes adjust to the light and they, and they stop seeing truth. You ever wonder why sometimes the God's word doesn't seem beautiful to you? Why the glory of the Lord? I mean, we talked this morning in songs about the glory and behold our God. Maybe you're sitting here today going, what is all this? Is this just silly things Christians say? Does anyone really believe this? Well, let me use another illustration here. I got a little bowl here. Um, we use it in our home for candy. Um, just, you know, straightforward, simple bowl. doesn't look like much in the darkness. But watch what happens when you bring this to the light. It's a different picture, isn't it? You know, if, if in your eyes God is not big and bright and glorious, it is not because his glory waxes and wanes. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. It is because we have moved. It is because our eyes have had a veil put over them. And later in this series, we will, we will look at 2 Corinthians 4 and seeing and beholding and being transformed by seeing the glory of God and what things can get in the way. Jeff, if you would, thank you. Bring the lights back up. That's the way darkness works. Make no mistake, if you're not pursuing walking the light, if you're not confessing your sin and you think you have fellowship with God, you lie, you deceive yourself. And you do not practice the truth. The glory of God is at stake. Our ongoing fellowship with God is at stake. Point C, our ongoing fellowship with each other is at stake. Look there in verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The clear implication is if we're not walking in the light, if we're not in the light, if we're darkness people, we don't have fellowship with one another. Now, Christian fellowship is more than just getting together and watching a game. You can do that with unbelievers. Christian fellowship is what I see when people are encouraging each other, praying for one another, when people's faith is being built up by others. We share a unity in Christ. I was able to meet some brothers when I was in Louisville, and I got the great joy of watching a friend of mine, Jeff Mixon, meet some of our men who went down, and in one evening, there's just love and concern and compassion and prayers because we all know we are unified in the body of Christ. And so even though some of those guys met him for the first time that night, there was such an evident love and fellowship going on that happens because we are one in Christ. And all of that, that gets discarded too. And a church that's filled with people who are walking in darkness is an ununified church. So, so how we deal with our sin matters. God's glory is at stake. Our fellowship with God is at stake. Our fellowship with one another is at stake. And this language about cleansing from sin We've been forgiven. If, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've looked to him in faith, if you've turned from your sin to him, you are forgiven. And yet Jesus makes it clear that while there is a judicial forgiveness that is a one-time, forever event, theologians sometimes, Paul calls it justification, there is an ongoing relational forgiveness that happens day by day. That's the example of Jesus when he washed the feet of his disciples. And Peter initially says, no, no, you can't wash me. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. He says, well, then wash my whole body. And he says, no, Peter, you've already been cleansed, but you need foot washings. Throughout the day, you get dust on your feet. Throughout the day, we sin. And that sin sticks to us. And that eventually begins to separate our, our ongoing fellowship with God. So your and my ongoing fellowship with God can wax and wane. You ever feel like sometimes your prayers are bouncing off the roof? Maybe it's because they are. David says, if I regarded the iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear. That's biblical. Our fellowship with God, our fellowship with one another. And, and then truly, most alarming for us is ultimately, if we don't ever get our heads around this, if we never deal with this, and I've met people, you know, it's just sort of like I'm saved and you know, you can't lose your salvation, and yeah, I know I should obey, but, you know, God's forgiving. If that's ultimately where we end up, we don't think about, we don't really wrestle with and work through, what do we do with, we still sin. 
We still displease him. We still love other things. What, what do we do? Ultimately, the reality of our salvation is at stake. The reality of our salvation is at stake. There's no doubt about it here. Look at the language of people who refuse to deal with their sin. They say they have fellowship. No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine with the Lord. Brother, brother, it looks like you might have fallen down and got some mud on you. Nope, nope, I'm fine. I'm clean. Me and the Lord are just fine. Um, I'm in fellowship with the body. That ongoing cleansing, that ongoing forgiving isn't taking place. We do not practice the truth in verse 6. In verse 8, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, that truth's not in you. And then worst of all, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Let me let you in on something. God doesn't like being made out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. What this means is if a person who claims to be a Christian refuses, never ultimately gets around to, is never taught, is never shepherded by the church, by the Holy Spirit, to be someone who deals with their sin, who, who biblically works through it, who ultimately celebrates it, who just walks in darkness. Such a person doesn't know the Lord. It's not that they lose their salvation, but the tree is known by its fruit, and if the fruit you continually bear in season and out is darkness fruit, without any change or alteration, we know what type of tree you are, and you're not a light tree. You're not sons of light. So this matters. And if, if, if I've got your attention, if you're a little alarmed, there's good news. Like, like there's good, good, helpful news. But I, I want your attention. I, I want this to be, whoa, this is important. It is. It is. How we deal with our sin, how we talk about our sin, we run the risk of making God a liar. We run the risk of deceiving ourselves. Our fellowship with each other and with the Lord is on the line and his glory is at stake. So then if that is why Christians must deal with their sin, let's, let's get to the helpful news on how can Christians live life with a holy God. And this is the same question that Israel had. Uh, in many senses, the entire ceremonial sacrificial system was answering the question, how can the nation of Israel move with a holy, holy God in their midst and not be consumed? God warns Moses, I'm holy. I'll, I'll, I'll destroy everybody. And so there's this whole system of washings and cleansings and clean and unclean which signify the holiness of God. And you can't just waltz up to God who is pure light and holiness, not when you're darkness. So how can we then as Christians, even forgiven Christians who call him son, how can we live, continue to live our lives in this world with a holy God? Well, he tells us in verses 7 and 9. First, by walking in the light. By walking in the light. The word for walk, the concept is, is to conduct yourself, to walk about. In a culture before automobiles, this, this is the notion of just your daily living as you walk about throughout the day. You're walking in light. The best way to deal with sin is to strive not to. And we're not going to spend a ton of time here right now because we've got about three messages in this series devoted to that. Okay, how do you walk in the light? How do you put on holiness? How do you grow in Christ's likeness? How do you, how do you walk more and more in the light? We, we are coming weeks, we will deal with that. I just want to point out that it is a lifestyle. And you're walking in the light as he is in the light. The, the best way to walk in the light is don't take your eyes off of him. It's not imagine what light is and do that. It's as he is in the light, you are in the light. Get your eyes on the glory of God. Get your eyes on Jesus Christ. Imitate that. That's how you walk in the light. According to 1 Peter 2.21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Greek's literally a stencil. It's a little instrument the children would use to trace their alphabet. We are to trace our lives around Jesus Christ, walking in the light, striving. This is about pattern. This is about habit. This is about lifestyle. This isn't about a level of achievement. This is about a direction and movement. 
But if we're doing that, if we're regularly walking, getting up, waking up, Lord, help me to walk in the light today. Striving to walk in the light today. We have this wonderful promise. We have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Every day as you're trying to do that, you're getting that foot washing. Every day as you're striving to walk in the light, your relationship with God is renewed. Your relationship with each other, our relationship is renewed. What about when you fall? What about when you mess up? It doesn't just leave it there. Verse 9. How can Christians live life of the Holy God? By walking in the light. Verse 9. By confessing our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this again is a present active verb. It's pattern, habit. This isn't a one-time event. The forgiveness again is relational. And we, we still need to ask God to forgive us. Hope you know that. Now, we're certainly not saying, oh, Lord, I fear hell. Please pardon my iniquity and remove from me the sentence of death. If, if you know Christ, that's already happened. This is the forgiveness of my son or my daughter coming up to me saying, Dad, I was wrong. Please forgive me. It's relational forgiveness. Now, I've made a covenant of love to my wife I've loved my children. There's nothing they can do that will stop me being committed to their good, that will make me stop caring about them. There's plenty they can do that in the moment can invite my discipline, that can invite um, correction. My pleasure in them can wax and wane. And if they want to restore our relationship to its full joy and sweetness, they come when they've done wrong and they confess. Sometimes daddy, in this case the picture gets reversed, sometimes daddy has to ask their forgiveness. But more often than not, they're coming to mommy. They're coming to daddy. I got out of bed. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And then the relationship gets restored by confessing our sins, which, of course, begs the question, what does it mean to confess? Now, please turn your Bibles to Joshua 7. And while you do, let me give you the box here. Both the Greek and the English word for confess, share a common duplex structure, the compound words, con, with, fess, to say, to say with. Greek's even easier, you'd get this, homo, legomen, from logos, the same, to say, to say the same, to say with in English. The blanks, what does it mean to confess? To say the same thing as God about our sin. That's confession. To say the same thing as God about our sin. And you might say, oh, that's easy. Not so fast. Because here's what's going on when we sin, right? When we sin, our heart gives us this propaganda sales pitch, and it says, hey, hey, Jeremy, you deserve that. It's okay, right? Or am I the only one whose heart ever does that? I know from experience, my heart, it's, it's okay, it's okay. It's really not that bad. It's worth it. And inwardly, I go, yes, it is. And I agree. I say the same thing as my evil desires. And then I act. I act on that agreement, right? What do I need to do to be able to agree with God first? I've got to change my mind. I've got to repent. I've got to inwardly turn from agreeing with the lies of my heart so I can get over here and, Lord, you say that that was evil. I agree that was evil. Lord, you say that that was not good. I agree that was not good. And next week, our next message will be on from Pastor Daniel, 2 Corinthians 7, dealing with what is repentance and how does that inward change work and how do we go from loving and delighting in sin to agreeing with God. I just want to point out here that confession presupposes repentance. Confession is the happy consequence of repentance. We have to say the same thing as God about our sin. And the reason why I want you to turn to Joshua 7 is I think probably one of the best confessions of sin in the Bible is found on the lips of Achan. If you remember the story, God had the Israelites march around Jericho. They were obedient. They had a triumphal victory. And he determined that everything in Jericho would be dedicated to the Lord, which means no one got any spoils, which had to be rather disappointing. 
if you were you know, a Jewish military soldier. Now, there would be spoils from later cities, but this first one, the first fruits of the conquest of Canaan, it was set aside wholly for the Lord. And one of the men takes something, and he hides it, and thinks he gets away with it. And when they go out to battle the next city, Ai, even though they have a vastly superior force, they're driven in flight, and Joshua knows something's wrong. And eventually, the Lord says, Joshua, Israel has sinned. Of course, God treated Israel corporately. Achan sinned, that means Israel sinned. And so pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 7. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, the clan of the Zerahites, and was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. And so as you sort of narrow it down and narrow it down and narrow it down, eventually there's one man standing before Joshua. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Let me just pause there. You ever realized you can give glory and praise to God by confessing your sin? My son, Joshua says, give praise to him. Give glory to the Lord of Israel. Tell me what you have done. And then Achan makes, in my book, this is the fullest, everything you want in the confessions here. And Achan answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, Achan and his family were put to death for this violation. But I fully expect and hope to see him in heaven I don't think there's anything I see in this text that indicates this is an apostate unbeliever. He was disobedient. And the Lord made an example of him, much in the same way in the New Covenant and New Testament where Ananias and Sapphira made an example. But I want to look at his confession. And I just want to notice four things about it that can inform how we say the same thing as God about our sin. Because it matters that we get this right. Because so much hinges and hangs on this. Because we can, we can have fellowship with God by walking the light, but let's just face it, we can only do that for so long before we get darkness on us. We need that cleansing. We need that foot washing. And that comes as a consequence freely of confession. First, use clear biblical language. Use clear biblical language. Aiken's confession is to the point it's clear. There's no question of what he's admitting or what he thinks he's done. And the, and the reason why I say biblical language is this. There's a game we can play where God calls something one thing, but we find a different name for it that's a little softer and easier to deal with, and it sort of tones it down. Let me suggest to you that once God has named something, once God has defined something, once God has said, this is the name for what this is, we lack the authority to call it anything else. Just consider that. Once God says, this is what, like take Jesus. Anyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent in his heart has committed adultery. Jesus has just named. What is it when someone looks at a woman to lust after? Jesus says, that's heart adultery. We have no authority or right to call it anything else. People may not like it being called that. That's what it is. It has been named for us. Use clear biblical language. And under that, point A, that means call sin, sin. Look at that right there. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. The Bible has a number of words for sin. There's wickedness, there's rebellion, there's lawlessness, there's corruption. But use good biblical terms as opposed to say, I made a mistake. An error in judgment Please, please don't get on your knees and ask the Lord to forgive you for an error of judgment. Call sin, sin. Use biblical terms. What does God call? Because that's at the heart of saying the same thing. Lord, I, I made a mistake today when I spoke harshly to my wife. 
Is that what God says about it? Is that what God calls a harsh word in anger? A mistake? I'm not saying the same thing as him. Call sin, sin. B, name your sin rightly. Name your sin rightly. Not only do we need to call sin, sin when we talk to God. I mean, and this is, this, is, this is the beautiful thing. The Lord will forgive it. The Lord will restore it. The Lord will wash it away. Call it what it is. Like, you're not going to fool him. Call it what it is. Name it for what it is. You know, my, I, I've done a concordance search. My Bible does not have the word peeved or snippy in it. I don't know if you know that. And maybe some of you have like the message or something and it's there, but, but <laughs> my Bible doesn't have that. And so when, I, so when I, if I were to confess to God, Lord, I was snippy with Serena earlier today. Like, I mean, he knows my heart, but anyone standing by listening, is it clear that I'm confessing sin? Now, the second I say I spoke in anger, about 50 or 60 biblical texts aim their spotlight at me, right? Because now I'm using a term the Bible works with. Oh, we know what anger is. We know what God says about anger. You've got to name your sin what it is, but we, we, we have so many other names for it. I mean, we always use it for us, not other people. Other people lie to us, we stretch the truth. You ever notice that? Other people lie to us, we stretch the truth. Other people are angry and jerks, we were a little irritated. Name it what it is, and if you don't know what the God calls it, do a Bible study, search. What does God have to say about anger? What does God have to say about lying? What does God have to say about lust? What does God have to say about jealousy? What does he say it so I can say it after him? That's at the heart of confession. Maybe some of us struggle with confession because we don't know what God says about it. He's given us a book. Go find out. Use biblical clear language. Call sin, sin. Name sin rightly. Two, identify the desires of your heart. Not only does Achan admit he sinned, but Achan tells you what was going on in his heart. I saw, he says, and I coveted. So let's take my example of speaking in anger to Serena. Let's try to build this back up. Okay, so we start off, not Lord, I goofed. Lord, I've sinned against you. What did I do? I'll name it for what it is. I spoke in anger to my wife. Why did I do that? I can say, I don't know, I was tired. Notice, Achan doesn't say that. Achan doesn't say, you know, I saw it. And we are kind of hungry, and we don't have much, and I've always wanted gold bars. <laughs> and it's kind of cold out in the wilderness, so the cloak was really, I got, it, I got it for my wife. And you've got examples in the Bible of this. What does Adam say? Lord, this woman you gave me. Does, does that make much headway with God? Let's, let's try another example. Saul. Um, Saul makes a statue of himself and saves the best of the sheep. And when Samuel comes to him and says, what have you done? He says, I feared the people. They made me do it. <laughs> oh, poor cupcake. <laughs> or my favorite one, my favorite one, Moses' brother Aaron. People, after 40 days, Moses is up on a mountain. The mountain's shaking and quaking. There's lightning. The people say, it's been 40 days. We don't know what's happened to Moses. Make us some gods to worship. That's pretty much quotation what they say. So Aaron has them hand in their jewelry. And when Moses comes down, the first time he comes down, he's so upset, he breaks the Ten Commandments, goes back up. Then he comes down again. And he goes and talks to Aaron. Aaron says, I threw the gold in and out jumped the statue. That is what he says. That's <laughs> what he says. But we aren't generally as foolish as all that, but we make all types of wrongly naming. So why did we do it? Okay. Lord, I have sinned against you. And against my wife. I spoke in anger. And honestly, I did it because I prized and valued my comfort more than I valued serving her. I was willing to make her my enemy to protect my comfort from the threat of her. Please forgive me. That's a very different confession. It's a very different confession. But when I'm sitting on the couch and I don't want to do the dishes because I'm tired or whatever, and she says, will you help me out? And I say something in anger back. That's exactly what I'm doing. In that moment, my heart says, Jeremy, you deserve rest. How wonderful God has given you a helper to help you. Help along, helper, help along. <laughs> and, and even though 
Ephesians says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And even though Ephesians says not to put on the towel and ultimately die, I say, no, I haven't come here to serve. I've come here to be served. And then when my desire and what I want to do is threatened by my wife because, uh-oh, she's asking me to help, I will, according to Proverbs, make my words like drawn swords to fight her, to protect what I want. So here's my stance. And what's happened is I should have been protecting my wife. I'm protecting my desire. I want comfort. And I will fight you. I'll make you my enemy. Go to James 4. It's exactly the way James describes it. It's exactly the way James describes it. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And most of us, if we didn't read the rest of the verse, would probably say, it's those people that make me so mad. (laughs) You always talk about people doing it to us. (sighs) She makes me so mad. He makes me so mad. That's not what James says. What causes quarrels and fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. Get this. When you fight, when you argue, when you're angry, there is something you want. There is something you crave. There is something you desire. There is something you must have. You desire and you do not have, verse 2, so you murder. Yeah, God calls it murder, a heart of murder. You covet and contemptain, so you fight and quarrel. That's what's going on. That's what God says about it. Now you start to see how it's tough. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Are you, are you willing to say that about your sin? Are you willing to b- agree with that? Most of us, oh yeah, Lord, I'm sorry. I was short with Serena. I'm sorry. I wasn't as gentle with her as I should have been. And it's not that God's demanding every single time we do it, we have to go through this rote thing. But in our hearts, he knows whether we believe this, whether we're really willing to say, I made war with my wife from a heart of murder because I wanted my comfort more than I wanted to serve her. I wanted my pleasure more than I wanted her good. And I've sinned. Please forgive me. That's what it means to confess. Number three, put to death all excuses. We already talked about the examples of Adam's excuse and Aaron's excuse and Saul's excuse. You know, the Lord is, is great. He is abounding in steadfast love, ab- abundant, willing to forgive. Nowhere in the Bible do I see him take excuses seriously. I mean, can you think of any examples? Where somebody's like, Lord, it's not really as bad as you think. And the Lord relents and says, oh, you got a point. He'll forgive. He'll pardon. He'll just wipe it away. Call it what it is. Don't offer excuses. Here are a couple tips with offering excuses in, in apologies. The I'm sorry but is not an apology. You, you all know that when people do it to you, right? I'm really sorry that I was spoke, spoke sharply with you, but I just get really frustrated when you... That's not an apology. I'm sorry but and I'm sorry if. That's not an apology either. When someone comes to me, I'm sorry if I said something that bothered you. What I want to say, if I'm snarky or if I know them well enough, is why don't you think about it, figure out if you did, then come back and talk to me. (laughs) Fair enough? I mean, you don't need to apologize if you didn't do anything. So I'm in no rush. You go think about me. Very few people I know well enough I could say this to and not offend. But what I want to say when I get the I'm sorry if apology is, look, Go think about it. Work through it. Pray about it. Lord, search my heart. Try me. Know my ways. If there's any evil way in me, show me. Come back and talk to me. I mean, do you want me to forgive you if? (laughs) Do you want the the if forgiveness? just, Just go talk to God. Put to death all excuses. And fourth, admit everything. Admit to everything. Notice again, Achan details what he took. I'm quite confident there wasn't an extra bar that he didn't mention. He goes through it all. So we need to call it what it is. We need to call sin, sin. We need to name it rightly. We need to identify what's going on in our heart. We need to offer no excuses. And we need to own up to everything, not just some of it. Proverbs 
28.13 says, Whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will be blessed. If you're still trying to hold back, if you're still trying to conceal, and again, you're not going to fool God. He knows. And, and it's crazy to do so when there's free restoration, free cleansing, free washing on the table for those who confess. So in the last few minutes that we have, to whom then must we confess our sins? If that's what confession is, to say the same thing as God about our sin, to use biblical terms, biblical names, to whom? Well, we've already talked about our first point, to God first and foremost. All sin is first and foremost against God. In Psalm 51, David has the audacity, after killing a man and stealing his wife, to say in Psalm 51, verse 3 to 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's hyperbole. David's well aware he killed a man. He's well aware he stole a man's wife, led her into immorality. He sinned against the child who would be struck. But in comparison to the horizontal sin of people, our sin against God just sort of eclipses that. We sinned against God first and foremost. David doesn't say, it's no big deal, Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, my bad. You read Psalm 51, it is a detailed confession in every, in every sense in which I've spoken about already to what David has done. To God first and foremost. Second, to the victim or wronged persons. And this is, again, where it starts getting harder. Okay, it may be a little tough, but I can guess maybe I can talk to God about my sin honestly. Here's the real question. Can you talk to other people about it honestly? Husbands, let me, let me give you just some testimony. If you're willing to go to your wife and say, dear, I have sinned against God in you. I spoke to you in anger and I made you my enemy. I did it because I wanted to watch my movie or I wanted to go out with the guys or whatever. And I desired and treasured that more than I treasured loving and serving you. Will you please forgive me? I'm just going to give you a tip. That works wonders in, in softening a heart. That works wonders in, in healing marriages. That works wonders in restoring relationships. Um, and again, you could say it as an act. You could write this down like a script. Okay, make sure I get this. It's about the heart. It's about what we mean to communicate. But are we willing as Christians to ourselves to call our sins sin? This gets back to the question. If we say we've not sinned, well, if you've sinned and you're like, I made a mistake, you are in effect saying you've not sinned, right? This gets back to our text. If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see how it matters how we talk about sin? You see how it matters what we say about it, what we think about it, how we talk about it to each other? In Matthew 5, 23 to 24, Jesus says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So if you've wronged somebody, stop what you're doing. Like this would be like skip church. It would be the equivalent, right? You get the priority here? If you've wronged somebody, if you've sinned against somebody, if you need to be reconciled to somebody, you need to confess to them. You need to talk to them. And it needs to be a priority. Leave your gift at the altar. Leave your car parked at the church. Just go. And thirdly, in a general practice, we should be confessing our sins to each other. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And, and here's the final point. We need to be developing, looking for, creating, cultivating relationships in the church where you can feel safe, where you can speak honestly, speak with this type of specificity and biblical clarity about your sin. I go to Monday Night Men's Group, and the guys are very honest with their struggles. I'd encourage you. This is, this is something Christians should be doing. Now, I can't say to whom or how many or how often, but what I can say is there aren't two types of Christians, those who, you know, who like to confess to people and those who don't. This is part of the healthiness. It's hard. 
keeps us out of the light because when we can't name our sin rightly while we're still in the darkness, we have to come to the light to see it for what it is. You know, and if you're struggling with it's not really that bad, it's probably because you're still off in the darkness. And the Lord says, come, come return. If you've been walking in the darkness, you've been straying from the path for a while, the Lord welcomes you back. The Lord invites you. He'll cleanse you. He'll wash you. Speak honestly about what's been going on. Speak honestly with him. Speak honestly with those you may have wronged. And be willing, as it's appropriate, to speak honestly in the body. Like I said, next week we're going to look at the, the pivot. That's something you want to do, but you find it hard to do. How, how do you turn from agreeing with sin to agreeing with God? Next week, Pastor Daniel will teach us from God's word what that looks like, what is involved. How do we know if that's happened? Today, I just want to remind us it matters. God cares very much about how we deal with our sin. And if we deal with it wrongly, if we pretend it's not there, if we pretend we're not sinning, we're in trouble. Our relationship with him is temporarily kaput. Our relationship with each other, kaput. And ultimately, if we never deal with it, we, we show we're not truly believers. And God invites us to walk in the light with him, to have fellowship with one another. And when we, when we fail, when we sin, to confess, to confess. I just want to close by reading the, just the next few verses in 1 John, um, developing this wonderful promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. God knows you're going to mess up. God knows you're going to make mistakes. We have a Savior. We have a sacrifice. We have a satisfaction. Let us not be afraid to speak honestly and truthfully to God, to our neighbor, about our sin. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. And we pray, or we pray that you would give us the courage to speak truly and honestly about our sin to you. Give us the courage not to pretend that it's not there, not to pretend that everything is well when it's not. But that you'd give us a genuine desire to follow you in the light. Lord, when we stray and when we fail, as we know we will, you'd give us the conviction to speak to you and to others rightly about what we have done, knowing that as we do this, we have fellowship with you, we have fellowship with one another, and your son's death, his blood is cleansing us and is purifying us from all sin. What a wonderful promise that is, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.